Today's podcast is sponsored by Google. Each day online can be a balancing act for parents. They want their children to safely explore the digital world, but also want to protect the precious offline moments they enjoy together. That's why the YouTube Kids app offers families a safer and simpler online video experience for children. As well as allowing parents to set limits on screen time, it also allows parents to choose a content library for their child based on age, or start from scratch and handpick videos and channels for their child to watch. To find out more, download the app today. Search YouTube Kids. MPs are to be given another vote on the Prime Minister's Brexit plans tomorrow. They won't just be talked into it. Mark is in a real mi minority here because he, he's Being in a... Being 17.4 million no, people. No. Parliament in just a few hours' time will be suspended for five weeks. What if it was your job to navigate a Brexit deal through Parliament? Faced with a government of no majority, an unsympathetic EU and a divided Parliament where goodwill and trust are in short supply. This was Nikki de Costa's task when she entered 10 Downing Street in 2017 under Theresa May. And there's this mission which is essentially find a way to still deliver a domestic legislative programme in Parliament and a way to get through on the Brexit side. And later for Boris Johnson. There's sort of a chessboard and Theresa May has been there and all you've got left now is a king and a pawn. That's it. Welcome to Women with Balls, where I speak to the former 10 Downing Street Director of Legislative Affairs. So Nikki, thanks for joining us today on this podcast. It's great to have you on. And just to begin on this podcast, we just tend to talk briefly about what you did before you were in the career that's brought you on the show today. So when it comes to your childhood, would you describe that as a happy one? I think so. I was, I was dwelling on this. Certainly at home, a happy childhood, but school was a different matter. I just felt always so awkward. I was like the kid that never got the memo as to what was the latest trend. I'd come in the school and there'd be this new skipping game or this new thing. And I was perplexed, you know, when was I meant to have learned this particular dance? And that was really the experience I had of primary school and middle school. And I started to rebel. And so at middle school, I was very, it thought, what's the polar opposite of this? And I got into motorbikes and and the army, and, you know, swearing, which was terribly not the thing to do at school. So, yeah, so a mixed bag. A slightly lonely school and happy at home. That's funny in the sense, I would imagine you, in a way, given the career you went on and also the degree you did do as probably an A-star student. So were you an A-star student who was also just swearing on the sidelines? Yes. How did the two come together? I went through primary school very much thinking I was stupid. And that was because in maths, you know, they would tell us, you know, two plus two equals four. And for some reason, I got hooked on the idea that why? Why does two plus two equals four? And there felt to me like there was a why. But this was obviously a very stupid question to ask. And It was more a university level question, isn't it? Well, I don't know. I, I, I got so discouraged in maths that I, I very much became an art student. And then when I went to Dr. Turner's High School, which is a grammar school, I gradually dawned on me that I was actually quite good at school. And I remember just sort of starting to get good grades and as is often the way with geeky kids, taking refuge in the library and thinking, I can't wait to get to university because there'll be so many more books, so many more things to look at. So school was good from that perspective. And did you develop an interest in politics while you were a teenager? When, when about did that come in? Uh, at GCSE, I had a history teacher, Mrs. Bobath, who was wonderful. But if we were feeling that we just didn't really want to work very hard that day, the best way to distract her was to go into class with the headline, you know, whatever newspaper it was in the headline and put it in front of us 
going, Mrs. Bobath, have you seen this? And then she was away and we would talk about politics and all the issues. And I knew I wanted more of that. And so at A level I took politics. And then I found out from her that her niece was in public affairs. And I learned that you could earn a living in politics without being a politician. And so I was one of those weird people that went to school, as uh, went to university, knowing that I wanted a career in public affairs, which is quite unusual. Is that why you decided to go and study PPE? And did anyone advise you to go for Oxford? Or did you just know with your grades that was what you wanted to do? Were your parents instrumental? Uh, we been to Oxford more to go shopping occasionally but it wasn't something that was the norm in my household my mum and dad were the first generation to go to university my grandfather came from quite impoverished East End background similar story from from my mother's side but I sort of just became aware of it and I remember applying and I do remember very acutely when I went to the admission so I applied for Magdalen which I found out when I got there for the interviews it had a deer park and so this was my level of knowledge of Oxford I, I didn't really know much other than I know that there was this great course called PPE and it was the thing to do for politics and that's why I ended up there and I was lucky enough to get in. Now you leave Oxford and you get a job as a researcher mm-hmm. is that correct? Is that for the opposition chief whip or what, no. what happened? As I said I wanted to have a career in public affairs and I did an internship with a small agency at, during my university years and they said the traditional path is go and be a researcher for a year in Westminster learn what it's actually like and then do the career. So I went there because of that pathway and I applied for a job so I applied with David Davis which was an interesting interview and then there was another role with Andrew Mitchell and Patrick McLaughlin who were jointly going to pay for a researcher and those that will know the personalities of those two particular MPs will know that although they jointly paid for my salary Andrew did get much much more of my time just because of the level of demand it was a really good uh, introduction and how I ended up eventually back as an advisor in opposition was that I went off and then Patrick became opposition chief whip and Andrew gave me a call and said, hey, we had lunch, would you return? How did the David Davis interview go? (laughs) (laughs) You left us us wanting more. It it was good. It was very, um, I'm not sure I can share anything particularly useful from it. I think we didn't really hit it off in terms of just just character. There were quite a lot of tests to go through and some written exams, and I remember that feeling quite good. But it just it didn't work out. Yeah, it just it just wasn't, wasn't there. there. After that, did you move back into public affairs for a time before? Yeah. So in two thousand and eight, the truth about the Whips Office is it is quite grueling in terms of just the temper of what you're dealing with but it's not necessarily the most intellectually stimulating in opposition it's not that you're getting involved in policy or really thinking about those problems and I, I started to feel that I just wanted a bit more and I you know I got some very good career advice early on which was always keep your CV with a headhunter just so you know what's in the market and as part of that I got approached and my head got turned by a ridiculous salary and I went back out to public affairs, which was always the intention. And I had a very politicised time at Serco. And then I was poached to go and help build a business with Mark Glover, which was a wonderful five years. And then what, what brought you back to politics? I didn't expect, as you can see, you know, I just added up a number of years for you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I had been out of politics for 10 years. I didn't ever expect to go back in. I, my network was dead as far as I knew. And then in the summer of 2019, I was building my business and I went to see an amazing civil servant, a guy called Roy Stone, who has recently left the civil service. He was the principal private secretary of the government chief whip and had been for 20 years. And we sat down and he was very fond of me and he gave me a very, very frank 
account of what was happening in government. Really frank, more so than even with a friend. And I thought, this is incredibly indiscreet. Why? And then he said, there's this role. And I think you might be good for it. Would you like me to put your name forward? And I realised then and there, and I did every month after that, after taking the role, that essentially this was Roy's moment to say, I did warn you how dysfunctional situation you were going into. And that's how it happened. And, you know, I was building a business. It was going really well. Um, my husband and I were newly married, and we were meant to be starting a family. And yet... The minute he said it, I was just thinking, I want to do this, I want to go back in. I, I never got to see what government was like. And this is a really important mission to deliver Brexit. And they're in trouble because they've not got a majority. And, and this um, is under Theresa May. This is Theresa May. It was um so she's lost she's just lost this. She's she's had the election. Yeah. There's no majority. Everyone is panicking. Everyone's panicking. We know that the hardcore remainers in the Conservative Party are enough to defeat everything. It's going to be gridlock. And there's this mission which is essentially find a way to still deliver a domestic legislative programme in Parliament and a way to get through on the Brexit side. And I just thought, wow, this is the first time this role had existed. Nobody had held it before. It was a wonderful opportunity. And, you know, I just I went home and I said, I, I really want to do this. And my husband backed me and my family backed me, even though it meant they saw a great deal less of me than they expected to for some years to come. And in terms of where you stood personally on Brexit, was it something you felt needed to be delivered? Absolutely. I didn't know how I would vote until the day of the referendum. I'd gone back and forth. I was veering towards a leave vote. I remember certain key moments, like waking up to Radio 4 and George Osborne's pronouncement as to what would happen and the, you know, the economic catastrophe, and that really got to me. I felt, you know, this is really you know, being weaponised against people. But on the day at 5pm, I went through the arguments again with my husband and said, right, you know, I think we have to vote out. And... You know, there's been a lot in the commentators saying about how people became more entrenched in their views after the vote. And I think that was the case because I remember the days after having people in public affairs just blithely assume that I had voted to remain and telling me how stupid people were and how unthinking. And I started to get really angry about this. And this idea that, you know, that we would just ignore as a country what people were, had commanded us to do just because we disagreed with it. It was just such an elitist viewpoint. And so, yeah, the idea of just participating in that, doing my bit, was, was incredibly motivating. So you enter Downing Street. The government doesn't have a majority, really. It has effectively a working majority with the DUP. There's obviously concerns in the sense of what the DUP will agree to on Brexit. And as you say, on top of finding a some sort of Brexit deal that can actually go through Parliament, it's your job to work out the mechanism for going through Parliament. You also need to work out the mechanism for pushing through a domestic agenda, which is also quite divisive, and everything in the manifesto has effectively just been binned because we rejected. So what do you do on your first day? The... Great thing I had in this job was I was one of the few spads with a job description written down because this role, Director of Legislative Affairs, had been the brainchild of the likes of Jeremy Hayward, Will McFarlane, who was the Deputy Principal Private Secretary Number 10, Gavin Barwell played a key role. And I was there, and this was sort of the command, to 
find a way through and crucially to combat the risk averse approach of the business managers and to contextualize their advice and I, and I quote that what I didn't realize is that when somebody says to contextualize the advice of a particular member of the cabinet essentially they are setting you up for a conflict role which is that you are going to have to really question whether or not they're making the right call against what the prime minister's strategy is but I had that job description. So day one was daunting, going through the front door. By that time, I had established that, yes, that front door was just used for general purposes, which was very, very, you know, quite scary. And I was shown down to my office and you, you go through that door and then there's, you go through this long corridor and there's this Henry Moore statue and then you see the cabinet room opening up in front of you, although I didn't know it at, at this time. And then we went down into the basement and I was shown into this room and it, you couldn't ask for a cheaper looking office in truth it was quite grotty carpets tiled carpets and the the paintwork was sort of cream but you know probably hadn't had a lick of paint recently mdf desks some blue felt boards for sticking things on it was really really mundane and i actually felt really relieved i thought okay this is actually quite grounding it's just a job you've got to get on with it think about what your strategy is think about what you think are your objectives and I started to set that out to people as to what I thought we needed to get done and I suppose there's so much that happened during that period and it's initially under Theresa May we'll talk about Boris Johnson as we go on because you worked with two different prime ministers who have two very different approaches but ultimately the same task so what was the, I suppose the hardest single thing that dominated most of your time was it the meaningful votes and were you just ultimately given because you weren't involved in negotiating the deal so were you just given what they had and then told to work with it yes and I think if I contrast my time under Theresa May and then Boris Johnson under Boris and the way that Dom operated was really about keeping certainly this this small group of us very much in the loop and understanding exactly what was happening under Theresa May it was very much, maybe that was concern about leaks, but it was kept very tight. And that meant that while I was there sort of working on things like the meaningful vote and thinking about how we got a deal when it was secured through Parliament, things came as a surprise. And it's known that I eventually resigned. And I think part of that was that we kept on set, you know, a lot of what we were doing was performative under Theresa May. You know, we would have to adjust our position and then we'd go out to the public and we'd say, here are our new red lines. And then a few months later, suddenly our red lines moved. And I started to just, I felt, where do we actually stop? What can I trust in, even from the inside? And it was a a shock. And, And I remember a situation quite early on when I went up to talk to a private secretary who was in charge of this area. And I said, do we have a strategy for what we want in order to leave the EU? And I was told... No, we don't, but Ollie Robbins does. And given that I was a politico and given all the environment in terms of people saying that kind of narrative, and Ollie's not had sort of that right of reply, but it very much played to that sense of we were just sort of living from day to day. There wasn't really enough of a sense of how to get there. So things kept on being a surprise and we kept on moving because we didn't know what our, you know, what our end goal was. And it was very different coming under Boris and it was a huge relief. And how did that under-reason may impact your role? Because there are a few points. Initially, it wasn't even clear the Brexit deal would have to go to a vote. Were there staging points like that which complicated your work? I think a lot of people that know me know that 
that my time in number 10 was characterised by protecting executive power, protecting the ability of the government to do things where they didn't need to go to parliament. And that's really important when you're a minority government. Something where you don't need to go to parliament is very, very valuable because it means you can still come across as in charge, powerful, able to set the agenda. From the start, the meaningful vote was the biggest threat because we knew that the biggest risk for a deal was that it neither satisfied the Remain cohort, which may be numbered about 10 to 20, and also the Brexiteers, which definitely numbered 40 and potentially up to 80, as we were to prove it. And what we talked about was there's going to be this unholy alliance whereby a deal satisfies neither of those and you get defeated by a massive number, which is exactly what we eventually saw in the meaningful vote. So I... That was an early concern. It was an early concern. Literally, this was my fight to try and prevent it and to do everything possible to prevent it solidifying. If we had to do it about a vote on the deal, then we needed to also avoid... The second bit coming in, which was a vote to stop no deal, because as Tim Barrow was saying, the UK permanent representative, as Ollie was telling us, as Denzel Davidson, the the special advisor in in number 10 on, on European negotiations, if the EU believed we could leave without a deal, then the negotiation dynamic changed. And this is what I heard the Prime Minister say, Theresa May, say again and again to the rebels, I just need you not to bind my hand until we get past this moment. I promise you I'm going for a deal. And they never would trust her. And so that lack of trust meant the negotiations went badly and it meant that they stuck the meaningful vote in. And so the key moments for me are the defeat in 2017 when the the start of it happened under Dominic Grieve. There was a chance to change it when we were doing ping-pong on EU withdrawal bill and my greatest amendment that never happened, and I'm very happy to talk about it, where there was a chance potentially to empower the Prime Minister legislatively for a key vote. And then it and was... that didn't happen. It didn't. This, this may be too technocratic and, and, no, and very good. technical. For those that will recall, and we're going into the minutiae here on the meaningful vote... The thing the Remainers wanted above all was to be able to say, no, you can't leave with this deal, but neither can you leave without a deal. That's not on. And if you try and do that, we're going to take control. And we also knew that the Brexiteers could not possibly accept no deal coming off the table. And yet we also knew that the government objectives were we needed to have a stronger hand to be able to say to the EU, whatever deal we secure with you, we can get through Parliament. And after a lot of thinking, it started to crystallise in my mind that there was a chance to strengthen the dynamic around that particular vote on the deal. We were stymied by the Fixed Term Parliament Act because it meant you could never make a vote and actually that specific vote a confidence vote, which meant that you could never make MPs responsible personally for the consequence of their vote. They never had to think, oh my God, if I vote against the government, I'm going to cause a general election, and then the voters are going to judge me. So they were completely scot-free. And it came up with an amendment which would basically say, the first time you vote against this deal, it's a free hit, don't worry. But the second time we put it in front of you, if you vote no, it's the equivalent of triggering the section in the Fixed Term Parliament Act that you have voted no confidence in the government, because that's essentially what you're saying. And that will trigger 14 days in which you have time to reflect. And if you then don't vote for the deal, then we're going to go for a general election. And so that was the idea that essentially, if we voted for it, and everyone bought into it, and we were going to go for it, and it was killed off 
I was killed off by the chief whip over the course of one day. And, and that the was chief whip at the time was? Julian Smith. Yeah. And for those that know, the only time I take pot shots on Twitter, it's probably about Julian. And the, the animosity is mutual. I, I have been told that by many people. And that was the last chance to really, I think, save Theresa May's deal would have been to give that legislative strength. You think that would have bounced people into effectively supporting her role? Yeah. yeah. And I got, went and spoke to four MPs, no, five. On the Remain side, I went and spoke to Stephen Hammond and Nikki Morgan. And I spoke to Justine Greening separately. And I said, look, this could give you insurance because you'll know that the Brexiteers will have to confront this too and they'll have to, and therefore they may come towards you. And I spoke to Bernard Jenkins and Bill Cash and I said, this gives you insurance against the Remainers. You know that this strengthens our hand in the negotiations. And they liked it. So there was, there was definitely potential there and it would have been you know, one of those moments where all of those in the lobby would have gone, oh my God, this is a very dramatic moment. Theresa May has come out here. And you know, the plan was we'd take that amendment, we were going to go and you know, she was going to make a speech from Downing Street to the country and say that this is, this is what's needed. We were going to present it in 1922. So it was the greatest manoeuvre that never happened. So um, that's a sliding doors moment. That's a sliding doors moment. <laughs> um, and then what did happen? Well, we carried on fighting and it was killed off. And what amendment went in was something that Julian Smith and Oliver Letwin came up with and talked to some of the others, which was essentially to say that in a no-deal situation, essentially, it was, you know, the speaker was in charge. It was, it was to give everything away. From that moment on, you know, the game was over, really, for that deal. And what was the point that made you think, I actually can't do this role anymore? Because you, you did leave it before coming back in under Boris Johnson. I got quite wobbly throughout 2018. As I said, our red lines kept on moving. And there were a number of times I, you know, sat down with colleagues like Robbie Gibb, the Director of Communications, and said, I'm, I'm really worried about where we're going. And Robbie said to me, look, don't worry, I can see your anxiety, but you must know, if, as long as I'm here, you know, we're on, we're on a good path. And he became my anchor point for a long time. And then things started to move, and then the deal comes back. We know it's in the building, and all of us were assembled to sort of try and sell it. But we're not being told what's in it. And I demanded a reading room for the advisors that night. This is the day before it goes to Cabinet. And... We read it, and essentially it was signing up to a customs union, it was a level playing field. I managed to get hold of a copy of the Attorney General's legal advice. I couldn't quite understand why everyone was so comforted by where the Attorney General was. I think that was because of the politics of what he would say. And I went home that night, and I talked to my husband, and I said, look, I, I don't think I can trust that the Cabinet will stand up against the deal, and I don't think I can be part of the people, the team to sell it. And so I think it's time to walk away, walk away quietly. And I told Gavin Barwell the next morning, and I said, I'll go quietly, but it's, you know, I need to go. And you mentioned Gavin Barwell there. I think we both just read his memoirs on that period. And one thing that struck out for me from reading that, from your comments, is he does accept in the book that they kept making the number of people privy to information smaller and smaller because they were worried about leaks. But in the process, you just isolate a lot of people. It sounds like that was something you felt. And then I also just wondered, I mean, did you think Gavin Barr was the right person to be in that role when it came to Brexit? Because it definitely was a frustration at the time. And there were hints of it also in the book that he, it was hard for him to speak for what the Brexit deal would be, given that he was someone who backed Remain and still seemed to be quite passionate. It's a really complicated question in many ways. Number 10 is an intriguing place to work, and it's nowhere else where your office gossip makes the front pages. Uh, and you know, we, we all read it ourselves and consume it, and then we talk about it at work. 
For me, you know, I've seen Gavin Barwell, I've seen Dominic Cummings, a period where it was Eddie Lister managing the ship, and then under Dan Rosenfield. And it's an impossible job. Gavin was amazing as, as a manager, as somebody that would empower, as somebody that would take seriously when he came and said to him, look, we've got an issue, can you, can you row in? But it's sort of, you know, you've got to remember that after that election, a, a team is assembled almost entirely from scratch, including Gavin, who hadn't really worked with the, the Prime Minister before. And you're starting from there with no strategy already in place. So I don't think it's about, you know, I think Gavin did actually a tremendous job and having served under other people, I think he was very, very good. I think the, the thing that was missing is that we were just so tactical then you know we led with watching the press and you know when we did it was the speech in Florence etc and there'd be the celebration ah you know we've come out and we've done this and we'd all feel very much cheered up but that would only last the next day's media and then if I contrast that to working with Dom and the amazing ability he had to cut through that and just to say to us you know focus on the bigger picture how do we get out stop worrying about the bubble and he was really adamant but that was really what was needed that strategy that clarity of objective and that's that's the difference but i don't think it could necessarily each person is for their their time and you've done a great segue there because ultimately you leave theresa may also leaves her role as prime minister and there's a tory leadership contest boris johnson gets in he still doesn't have a tory majority but this is before the 2019 election and you go back. So how does that come about and what's the first day under Boris like? I was chronically unable to disengage from the fight once I left number 10. I did set out, actually. I thought the one thing that on my CV that I don't really know to do much about, I, I'm just not, I'm scared of the media. And I started to do tweet and get involved on, the, on what we call Brexit constitutional Twitter. And... I knew that, and I was fighting Dominic Grieve and Nick Bowles and Oliver Letwin from the margins, sort of trying desperately to influence how MPs in Parliament were thinking about particular manoeuvres, because I could say it from the outside. And then when it became clear that there would be a change in leader, I thought, well, I've got to find a camp to, to back. And I actually went for Dom Raab initially. I was in Dom's team because I thought of all those putting themselves forward, he's probably the one that would go for no deal. And I thought that was absolutely necessary to convince the EU to change their negotiating stance. And then Dom got knocked out and I went and had a bit of a chat with Boris's team and they asked him to come on board. I have to confess, I didn't think Boris necessarily had it in him to be as hardline as I thought it would be necessary. And then we're sitting there in Admiralty House the day we're going in to number 10. And Eddie Lister comes in and he says, look, it's, it's going live on Twitter. You guys need to know. And we've got Dominic Cummings coming in. And that was sort of the change of the dynamic. And shortly after that, a few days later, I was asked to go in and see, have a chat with Dom. And he said to me, you know, you've got a great reputation, but I need you to understand that this is by any means necessary. And do you understand that? And, you know, I said, you know, yes. And I think that's what's necessary because what people don't understand, this isn't a new prime minister. This isn't a new game. There's sort of a chessboard and Theresa May has been there. And all you've got left now is a king and a pawn. That's it. It's not that you get to start afresh. And we are already in dire straits and it's going to feel fine over the summer recess. But when you get back into it, it's going to be hell. And so you're going to have to really, really try. 
I'm going to then talk a bit about strategy. And then going out the door, I did turn back and I, I said to Dom, Dom, can I just check, you do mean within the law? And he said, yes, but he did grin at me. You know, there are lots that's been said about that, but the point was we needed to convince the EU that we would do anything. We would, you know, they needed to convince that we were, you know, it was lots of been used of the phrase, that we were madmen and that we would do it. Now, I mentioned in the introduction, you were credited as the mastermind behind the mechanics of the prorogation of Parliament. It's something that came up during the Tory leadership. I think Dominic Raab edged the closest yes. to saying he would do it. Yes. I remember interviewing Boris Johnson at the One Nation Hustings where I asked him about this and it was a politician's answer, but he said, you know, he was very, very um, off the idea, didn't like the idea at all, but wasn't a complete denial. So at what point in moving in does that start to be something that you're having to work on? I formulated it under Dom Raab, and I think this is really important to understand. It was never intended to stop Parliament. It was intended as a mechanism for controlling a period of time to buy time to get to EU Council on the 16th of October with the Prime Minister's hands unbound. So the idea of listeners is... Parliament was so chaotic by that point. You had John Burko changing conventions. You effectively, in a way, had a remote control parliament where opposition leaders would come together, try and force the government to do things because the executive power's um, gone. And by proroguing parliament, suspending it, you bought the government time. Yeah. So you've got a leader coming in just before summer recess, and then they get the better part of a month and a bit with Parliament not around, in which they can really come across as prime ministerial, in charge, etc. But then when Parliament comes back in at the start of September, you've got six weeks till EU Council. And we've already seen them legislate how many times by then? Three, four times taking control in Parliament, pushing the previous prime minister to do whatever they said. And so it's a certainty that they're going to come in at them, at the prime minister in those six weeks. And if you're going to get to EU Council on the 16th of October and the EU are going to do different, anything different, they have to think that Parliament can't stop you. And so you think about how do you manage those six weeks? You can't introduce any legislation yourself because it could get hijacked. You're not going to give opposition days because it could get hijacked. You're not going to do back, you know, and you go through the options. And what I ended up with is I had been arguing, and there are box notes aplenty, for the better part of a year, I've been saying, Prime Minister, we really need to end this session. It is now getting to be too long a session. We need to renew the legislative agenda. And so I knew we needed a Queen's speech. And the benefits of a Queen's speech is it does come with a period of prorogation, which is when Parliament's not sitting. And delightfully, it also comes with a set number of days of debate afterwards, which it's very bad form to interrupt. And so there was, there was a nifty little block of time I could insert into that six-week period. I also looked at a budget. There's another set of days of debate that I could again insert. And it was basically, how can I make sure, you know, present, we're in charge. Here's our domestic legislative programme. Everyone knows it needs to be renewed. But there are some tactical advantages to the process that sits around a Queen's speech, which could buy time, which could push the rebels off just that little bit longer so that the Prime Minister can stay at the negotiating table with the EU less certain of what will happen. And then they might change their minds. And did you think Boris Johnson would do it, prorogue Parliament? Because at the time, you know, it caused, you know, a huge outcry. We'll get to it, but, you know, yep. it went to the courts. Yep. Uh, people were appalled, yep. particularly because it was a big thing in the leadership, you know, saying this would frustrate democracy. So did you, once you were in there, once you knew Dominic Cummings was there, was that when you thought, actually, they are going to do this? There was a lot of discussion. 
and the key thing really that everyone needed to understand was we were already dead. I'm, uh, this is the thing that people didn't, uh, that had to understand. You can't think oh, in the in the, the you know, in the halcyon days of the summer recess where it all feels very comfortable. It's quite nice being prime minister. You know, you're not being encumbered by anything. Well, I remember writing hmm. a column about how the first hundred days of Boris Johnson had been surprisingly calm, yeah. and then it all kicks yes. off. Obviously. Yes, because it feels nice. You you don't have any obstacles. But what I had to understand is that they would come for us. They didn't trust Boris at all, and that has been played out uniformly. They didn't trust Boris. So there was no way they wouldn't intervene. They would legislate. That was a certainty already. And so you could continue to play the game that Theresa May had, of always trying to be the more reasonable one, always giving ground. But that had gotten us precisely nowhere. But what we could do was change the dynamic, change the dynamic with the EU, get the time and place for the negotiations, but also change the dynamic in Parliament. And for that, you need some shock and awe. And part of that was, you know, surprise them. Tell them, here is a different government. Here is a different prime minister. You are on warning. And so it was about taking them through that thought process. And, you know, yes, there was a lot of debate and stuff, but ultimately you keep on coming back to it and going, there's no alternative. So, you know, we're doing this. And part of it also was to acknowledge that you have to be shown to fight Parliament and that it may end up in a general election because you just may not be able to break through. So, yes, lots of debate, some uncertainty, but everyone did the calculations with me. When I took them through the grids, they ended up in the same place because that was the only logical conclusion. So the Prime Minister prorogues Parliament. Mm-hmm. What happens in the immediate aftermath? What is the yeah. sense in Downing Street? So the, the day of the product that it goes live was, I have to say, one of the best moments of my career. I know, I know that there will be Remainers out there just throwing things at if, if they could even bother to tolerate listening to this. And I remember a tweet by Matt Chorley, which I still love today, which is, it is sneaky, it is conniving, but illegal it is not. And it shows a ruthlessness about this government that wasn't there before. And that was everything I wanted. It was the game changer. And... Reports were coming in from my sources in the sort of the Remain camps of saying, what the hell? This is new. So that was, that was a good day. The night before we had started to hear it was leaking. That was quite tense and difficult. But the day of was pretty good. And, um, Any celebration, drinks or pizza? No, no, no. I mean, it, there was just no time. I mean, also, at, at that stage, I was heavily pregnant. Okay. Um, I was very heavily pregnant, so yeah. I wasn't doing... But celebration I, diet code. Yeah. Um, but Rob Oxley, who was um, working with the lobby at the time, he came and said, look, can you come round and just explain to all the lobby why we need a Queen's speech, why there's a domestic programme? All of which was absolutely what we needed to do and I remember sort of waddling around for the first time going and speaking to all the, the lobby journalists which was fascinating and just you know basically taking them through history of prorogations history of Queen's speeches the necessity the kind of things we we're going to be bringing forward legislatively because we did absolutely need a new domestic program it was the longest session in 400 years now it wasn't the end of the matter no <laughs> It went to the courts. It is. I remember being, I think, at Labour conference when that court judgment came through. Can you explain to listeners what happened and what, what your reaction was? It's important, again, there's a lot of detail. Before going there, the ability to prorogue Parliament is what we call one of the royal prerogatives. 
it's a prerogative that belongs to the Crown, which is exercised by the government. And there will be constitutionalists who can give a much better description on it. Other prerogatives are, for example, the right to wage war, to negotiate foreign treaties, prior to the fixed number, the ability to dissolve parliament, etc. And my job as an advisor is to make sure things are as safe as possible for the Prime Minister, but also as a Conservative and somebody that's constitutionally Conservative and a monarchist was also to protect the Crown. And so a lot of work went in in the background to talking to government lawyers. The advice was this is not justiciable. This is not justiciable. And, you know, but we have an activist court. And then we sort of go through this process. And then people started to waver, particularly in terms of the government lawyers. And then you get this sort of horror of not only have they decided it's justiciable, but they've also made up new law, which is essentially that there are now these parameters around it. And the day of the judgment, and I started to have this this bad feeling about where it was going. And the day of the judgment, we all piled into what's um, one of the big committee rooms. It's a very grand room with portraits on the walls and this very, very big square table. And there must have been at least 50 people in the room. And we're watching Lady Hale on the TV. And it takes a certain amount of resistance not to flinch every time your name's read out (laughs) in one of the most momentous judgments in, in our recent history. But because of the experience I had had under Theresa May, etc., and it had been drummed into us about Nom, it was almost acknowledging, okay, that, that, that's lost, that's lost. What do we do now? What's the step? And we'd already planned for this in terms of, you know, where do you pivot to? And it was, you know, if the courts stop you too and there's nothing you can do, the only card left is the politics. And so you start to move to it. You know, you don't like it. You don't like what the judgment says. You don't like what we're doing as a government. Give us an election. You know, face the people, make us face the people. And that's when we started to hammer it home on day in, day out. We're we're hammering this message home of saying, you know, well, you know, come at us. And again, it forms part of that. So a very difficult day. And I was very lucky to get the support of of a team. And, you know, what not once did anyone go, what, that really backfired, Nikki? But it was sort of about then saying, okay, this is what, what the consequences are and how do we move from there? And, I mean, there's obviously so much to talk about when we're talking about all these things, so we could be here for absolutely hours. But um, as we now know, what happens is eventually the government does get that election. The Dominic Cummings strategy, which is, you know, you just keep pushing for it and almost being the maniac, someone will crumble, it happens. It's Joe Swinson from the Liberal Democrats, and the rest is history. But I wondered, I suppose moving to the present day, so I just wanted, I mean, a few things to touch on before we get to the end of the podcast. One is when we're talking about Dominic Cummings, he has also left Downing Street now. And he's been talking recently about the Northern Ireland Protocol and suggested that it was always a plan to renege on those commitments. This is at a time when David Frost is trying to renegotiate it or bring a new one. Was that something you were aware of? Yes. The withdrawal agreement that was negotiated was negotiated you have basically this bill that's passed, which is already going to force a prime minister, to, to even Boris Johnson, to have to go and request an extension. It's already hamstrung the government in negotiations. So you do the best you possibly can with that dynamic. And that will produce the withdrawal agreement as it was at the time. And yes, it has its flaws, but that's kind of the best you, you can do. So yes, this, this chimes. Yeah. Yeah, so there was a sense that perhaps you would try and go back on the protocol. I don't want to put words in your mouth. So so I wouldn't, this would be sort of above my pay grade. But what I would absolutely say is that, you know, as we told the MPs, such as Grieve, etc., time and time again, 
if they could just give the Prime Minister time to negotiate, a better deal would be on the table. And what I saw year in, month, month in, month out, over the years, was that in their impatience, in their lack of trust, they undermined two Prime Ministers in negotiating a good deal. And what we got in the end was very much a result of their machinations. And why did you choose to leave then? Um, you get a workable majority in a way, imagine perhaps it's less dramatic, but should make your nine to five, or maybe it's a nine to nine <laughs> in politics, um, you know, easier. Um, what made you decide to leave in the end? Number 10 is an extraordinary place to work. And what I loved about my time there, and it was something that Gavin Barwell and Peter Hill and Will McFarlane worked really hard to create, was a one-house sense of the place, where whether you were the cleaner, the front of house, switchboard, or the chief of staff, you were all on a level, all doing your bit. And you've got to compare with compassion for each other. And then under Dom, I'd seen this wonderful, and during the Brexit time, this focus and this pulling together and this collegiate atmosphere. And, you know, as is the way when you've had lots of fractures within an office and you get a new change in leadership, things were very different. And there wasn't that sense of mission anymore, but also I, I wasn't... The culture was not had changed quite a lot, and I just didn't love the job anymore. Because there were, just briefly, reports at the time suggesting that, you know, you had taken Dan Rosenfield, the new chief of staff, to task for cutting people out of meetings, particularly those of policy expertise, and kind of speaking on behalf of those who had felt like that. So was Dan Rosenfield a factor in that? How, how do you think he compares to previous chiefs of staff? I, I pause here because it's fundamentally unfair for me to be saying something publicly when he has no right of reply other than through our number 10 comms colleagues. That story is there. It's an accurate reflection. You know, I, I laughed a little bit when, you know, I found out that the journalist was writing because essentially I couldn't deny it. There were so many witnesses to it. And essentially this is, this is me down to tea. You know, I could say it because I was somebody senior and the cost to me politically of saying it was not so great and I could take the pushback. But there were a lot of people at more junior levels who were not in a position to say anything and therefore it was for me to do what I could. And final two questions. You've got your young daughter. Yes. Now I, I imagine her having a more relaxing life than, you know, two years ago. What is your focus at the moment? I start a new role in November, watch this space with some great colleagues, and I'm really looking forward to that. But in the meantime, I am writing a book regarding this period of time, and I must get on to trying to find a publisher. Hint, hint, for those that are listening. And that's a joy. And really just, just find, sort of find my way, really. And then the final question we ask everyone on this podcast, which is just, um, what is the worst advice you've ever been given? And I'm really curious to know, this is, this is pre-entering politics, or actually some advice during that quite difficult period? <laughs> I think the worst advice I had, because it really stayed with me, I was 14 and we were at school and we were just learning basketball and I had the ball and there was nobody free, nobody free to take the ball and I was yelling, get free, get free. And afterwards the teacher took me aside and this is an all-girls school and she said, you mustn't be bossy. And... You know, I really think, you know, and, and this is relevant also to, to, to politics because I'm sorry, okay, people may think things about you, but if you see that something needs to be done, if you see that there is a really big issue, you could assume that somebody else is going to do something about it, or you can step up and take the judgment, take whatever people are going to throw at you, and 
at least get it done. And I think ultimately this is the rule for special advisors. Be willing to throw yourself on the sword, not just at the end of your career when you, you know, but throughout. Take the personal risk. It, it's on you to do that because that's your duty. Thank you, Nikki, and thank you for listening. And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any of our many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk.